man. That was pretty quick. Okay? If you were interested in that, you'd go on YouTube and just put, you do the math. Because that is exactly what the Bible says about faith, salvation, and works. And I call attention to that because in a little bit, in what we look at, we're going to see Jesus encounters people close to Him in regard to their faith and their works. Are you a person of faith? Now think about that. Are you a person of faith? If we re-looked at that video again, would that video describe you as a person of faith? Are you a person of faith? I'd like you to take your message map, if you would, that handout that was given to you. And there's a page there with blanks. Okay, it's, it's got the date and it's got the sermon title. And I'd like you to fill in that first blank, if you would. The first blank. And you can look for the answer on the screen. It'll be on the screen. Let me give it to you while they're putting it on the screen. It says, faith is an internal conviction. Faith is an internal conviction that demonstrates itself with external action. Now think about that. Let's leave that up there. Faith is an internal conviction that demonstrates itself with external action. You see, the Bible speaks. I know that sounds sort of technical. Let me just say this. The Bible speaks about internal conviction. Jesus walked on this earth. Okay? And some of you question that. That's why we're doing Luke. Luke's written 29 years after Jesus left this earth. Luke is investigating Jesus. He's going to places where he heard Jesus had been. Luke is asking questions to people who said Jesus interacted with their life. Healed them, taught them. Luke is doing this because basically... A man is paying for Luke to investigate about Jesus because he heard about Jesus. He gave his life to Jesus. But you know what? Jesus has already left the earth, gone back to be the Father, and he wants to know, how, no, is this true? And so he, in a sense, is a benefactor. He is paying for Luke to do the research to write a book. Or to write back to him, and we got it. We call that book Luke. And if we looked at the first chapter, the third verse, Luke writes to this guy, he had a name, Theophilus. He wrote to Theophilus and he says, these things I have carefully investigated. And so he's talking about Jesus. Well, Jesus talked about internal conviction. Jesus said, I am the Lord. See, that's internal conviction. That's something we believe by faith. Doesn't make any difference how much proof I might give you about the life of Jesus. Doesn't make any difference about any kind of, of other cooperating material I can show you. That is an internal conviction you take up here. Jesus is Lord. And the Bible speaks about external actions. For Jesus said it this way. Jesus said... Follow me. In other words, live like me. Love like me. See, Jesus is talking about that's external. You have an internal 
conviction. I am the Lord, you believe me, but you are to have an external action. You are to follow me. Everybody's saying, how should a Christian live? Now, I'm going to tell you, you see the traditional church say, now, if you're a good Christian, you wear a tie, a dress, suit coat. Now they won't say that because that's been confronted. I can remember when I started in the ministry, people used to say, if you didn't speak in tongues, you didn't have the Holy Spirit. Folks just looked into the Scripture. They can see the Scripture plainly teaches people without speaking in tongues have the Holy Spirit. And so the churches are not saying you got to wear a tie and a dress. And yet you go to some, some people say, I don't think you're, you're appropriate unless you've got that kind of clothes on. Some people say you got to sing a certain kind of music. See, we try to describe what the external actions are to be. Now, I'm not trying to put anybody down and build anybody else up. I just want to say this. Jesus came into a culture. He was totally different than the Pharisees. Not in his relationship with God. Matter of fact, he was closer to God than they were. But he was totally different in how he related to people. He looked at a woman who had been married five times. You know what? He cared for her. He showed mercy and love to her. He went to a man's house that the Pharisees said if he knew how bad that man was, he would never go into his house. But you see, he cared for people who the culture said just aren't any good. You see, he showed us what external action is like. If you have internal conviction, you are to show external action. And many of us, if we have any kind of church background, we're always struggling with the activity of the church and not the external action of Jesus. Living and loving like Him. That's all He wants us to do. Matter of fact, 20 years after Jesus left this world, before Luke even wrote about Jesus, a man by the name of James, who walked with Jesus, wrote this. Look on the screen. In James, the second chapter, the 20th verse, he wrote, How foolish! Can't you see that faith, that faith, that's the internal conviction, without good deeds, that's the external action, is okay. That's what he wrote. Is that what it says? He says it's useless. And yet there's a lot of us who say, I'm going to die and go to heaven, because Jesus is Lord. But are you living and loving like Jesus? Faith is internal conviction that demonstrates itself in external action. That's what Jesus taught. That's what the people who walked with him understood. And that's what James was writing to people and telling them 20 years after Jesus has gone back to be with the Father about faith and action. True faith involves a commitment to living and loving like Jesus. And you know what? This world knows if Christians do that. That's why, listen, this world has quit going to traditional churches. Because traditional people sing wonderful songs, great meaning, and then they'll go out and they'll cheat in their business. And those people look and they say, why do I want anything to do with him? The culture knows. People go to church to impress other people so they'll come and buy products from them. And the culture says, but I look at those people and they aren't kind. They're mean. Culture says, I don't want anything to do with people like that. 
Now, it doesn't mean you and I can be perfect. The Bible says we're always going to be struggling with temptation in this life. But you see, Jesus tried to tell us, if you have an internal conviction, there ought to be an external... Listen, there ought to be an external action that comes about. And in a little bit, we're going to look at that. So if you have your Bibles, open them to Luke. Luke, the ninth chapter. If you got the New Testament, it's, it's page 59. And I invite you, if you don't have a Bible, take one of those New Testaments and bring it each week. Because we're just going through the Gospel of Luke. And so out there's the New Testament. I'm reading from the New Living. That NLT says the New Living Translation. Every so often I'll use a verse from a different translation because it's a little bit easier to understand. But as a whole, this Bible is more simpler to read from the platform and for people to follow who aren't used to the Bible. Some people have asked me, what is a good study Bible? The English Standard Version is probably considered the most accurate by people who are greater scholars than a guy like me. Because it's been translated with an understanding of the Greek and Hebrew language, especially the Greek, and also with manuscripts that have been found of the New Testament. But before we look into Luke, you should have the ninth chapter ready. Let me say thank you. Thank you to the people who come and set up. Thank you so much. I was talking to a guy that pastors a church, started, uh, I want to say a year and a half ago, two years ago, has like 90, or he said his high Sunday was 90 people. I don't think that's his regular attendance. And they have worship at 10 o'clock. He told me, okay, he says, the people who come to set up begin setting up at 715 for our 10 o'clock worship. And I just, I didn't try to correct him or anything in that. It wasn't my job. I just said, well, how many people set up? And he says, five. I want to thank you for the, for the small army that turns out to set up. Really. Sometimes people want to say, but where are those others? We've got a lot to come. Thank you. Thank you for doing that. Also, if you, if you, if you're, have noticed in technology, Colton has been doing our technology. We lost Shane two years ago. Colton has taken over for that. Okay? Colton's got a job that requires him. He's just starting. It's a great opportunity. Going to be gone on Sundays. He's got to go to work Sunday morning. And so, the technology group, just finding out that Colton thought he'd be able to tell us two or three weeks and he can only tell us two days before Sunday. And these folks are filling in. I so appreciate that. I so appreciate that. And if, if you happen to look over your message map, that top article on the inside page talks about missions. Missions outside or beyond the USA. See, we don't pass, pass an offering plate. People want to give connection. They just drop it in a box out there. And yet our people give to missions. I want to thank you for that. And if you look at the Nick's article, it's the property fund. We have over $58,000 in our property fund. Someday we will have a permanent facility. That isn't our goal. God will lead us in that. The worst thing we could do is get ahead of God. But there have been people giving on a regular basis to our property fund. That is, I so appreciate that. I so appreciate that. Somebody asked me, what if we don't use the property fund? I'm going to tell you, if I still have input... I will say then the treasurer gives all that money back to the individuals that gave it. If they've given a record. 
If it's, if it's 15 years from now and we don't decide to buy a property, of course we will, you know that's going to happen. And I think the money just goes back to people give it. I'm going to tell you, you won't hear that in most churches for most pastors. There's no reason to hold on to money that's given for a purpose. But we will. And I appreciate so much because somebody, somebody's in the plural, on a regular basis is dropping something in there marked property funds. Or, yeah, property fund. And I so appreciate that. Some of you, some of you younger people will enjoy a permanent facility that maybe I won't enjoy because we said it probably won't come for 10, 12 years from when we started. Maybe 15. But you will. Laura and I have been a part. A part of giving to that property fund. So have many of you. I want to say thank you. Because I do not take that for granted. I do not take that for granted. There's a statement that I've made. It says this. People who know commitment. Excuse me. People who know contentment. People who know contentment. Give. Listen. They give without remembering. They get without forgetting. Think about that. People who know contentment. I'm talking about people who who can get a hold of contentment. All of us, our contentment is robbed from us. It's robbed from people who love us. It's robbed from people who don't even know us. It's robbed from this culture. It's robbed by our government. It's robbed by our businesses. It's robbed by our education. Contentment can be robbed from you. But people who know it, who gets it back, are people, listen to me, who give without remembering. In other words, they don't say, you know, I give all the time. Why don't somebody else do it? I'm always doing this job. Let somebody else do it. They don't remember their giving. They just give. Is that making sense? Great illustration of that used to be, I don't think it's true today, was mothers. Because today, mothers, they, they want those little kids and then all they do is, they don't forget. They always remember, well, I give this kid all the time. Won't somebody else give me a break? I give all the time. But it's not just mothers. But mothers are a great illustration of giving without remembering. Listen, people who know contentment give without remembering. They just give. You say, don't they realize somebody else could do that? They just give. And you know what? We like, we like to relate to people who give without remembering. Guess what? They like to relate to us. People who know contentment give without remembering and get without forgetting. In other words, they know they're getting things. And they just don't forget. They know it. See, Laura gets, gives things to me. I get. I shouldn't forget. You, this morning people gave things to me. Just for what they did. If I am going to know contentment, I never forget that. When that policeman directed traffic yesterday, in that situation I entered, that policeman gave me something. I do not want to forget the authority of our law officers. The people who taught me in my process of education gave me something. Be careful that I forget that. And I'm trying to say, all those educators, all they want is a lot of money. People who know contentment give without remembering and they get without Forgetting. 
Jesus taught us that. We are to remember that. Would you bow with me for prayer? Father, today as I look at this scripture, help me to be so honest with it that, Father, it comes alive in our minds and then will become alive in our lives. God, thank you for this time. Thank you for such a wonderful, wonderful gift that these eight people on platform gave us in regard to our music. Shame on any of us, Father, for not hearing the preciousness of the sound and the words that were lifted up just a little bit ago. Father, just, just enlighten us, we ask you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Now before we look at Luke 9, I want to call attention to one more thing. On your message map, there's a page called Connect Groups. I want you to look, I want you to look at the title of the, the discussion in the Connect Groups this week, week. Don't criticize one another. Now I'm looking out here, I know, well I don't know. Sorry to say, I know some of you don't need this lesson. Okay? Listen, this is going to, this is tremendous. This is tremendous. I'm so frightened. My group meets tonight. I'm so frightened I'm going to mess it up. Because I am so excited about what the Bible says about not criticizing each other. And we live in a critical society. Man, we criticize the president. We criticize Congress. We criticize, I, I go through everything. We always criticize. Don't criticize one another. How about in the church? Have you told anybody thank you in the church? Well, I would encourage you to come. We have different meeting groups. We've got five of them, I think. One, two, three, four, five to meet on Sunday. Today, the youth will not meet. <laughs> Matt mentioned this is a season of sickness. It's hit his house, okay? So youth, uh, visit Mary's site on Facebook or whatever. Whatever it is, they won't meet today. But you can see the others meet, young adults, uh, my group. Uh, we, we have child care. We have people in our group. We just asked the people in our group put money in a pot to pay for child care. We got people who don't have children who put money in the pot to help us child care. But, uh, and then you can look at the Monday groups. You can look at the Tuesday groups. We invite you. This week would be a good week because the topic is a great topic. I invite you to that. Okay? Well, let's look. Luke, ninth chapter. Look at the 37th verse, okay? Because I want us to conclude with face down today. Okay? Luke, ninth chapter, verse 37. Again, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. If you've got a different translation, it will sound a little bit different. It says, The next day, after they had come down the mountain, a large group, or a large crowd, met Jesus. Let me stop for a minute. Get our place. Last week, we saw they went up in the mountain, they experienced that wonderful transformation, or transfiguration that took part, or took place. They saw Jesus in His eternal glory, as I explained to you. They saw, this was Peter, James, and John, they saw Jesus as He was before He came to earth, and as He will be when He returns to earth. They saw Jesus in His eternal glory. It was an awesome experience, a marvelous experience. Now it goes on in verse 38. Jesus comes down from the mountain with those three guys. His disciples are going to be there, and there's a crowd of people. And 38 says, a man in the crowd called out to him, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, my only child. Now I want to interject here because we need to learn this. Because you see, I think people become Christians so they can go to heaven, and they forget to involve themselves in the lives of other people. What happened? Jesus comes down on the mountain and there's somebody who's saying, I want a piece of you, sir. 
See, there's a guy in there that wants a piece of Jesus. And if you remember what I told you, if you live and love like Jesus, there will be a power that will occur in your experiences, your words, your action. People will see it. And if you live like Jesus, what will happen is people are going to want a piece of you. They're going to want to know why. How come? How do you do that? Now, some people, they, they, they may not like your answers because your answers always go back to follow Jesus and they don't want to follow Jesus. But you see, Jesus was always interrupted. Somebody always wanting something from Him because He helps people. And if you live like Jesus, somebody's always going to be interrupting your life because you see, they want something from you. And if you help others, people find out about that, see? And we all ought to be helping others. We all ought to be living like Jesus and loving like Jesus. Okay? So here's his father. Now he's desperate. Okay? We're going to look at his situation. He is desperate. He needs something. He needs something very much. What does he say? He says, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, my only child. Or my only, yeah, my only child. This man's son is having a problem. This man is saying, my only child. Now that's important to hear, you see. Because sons were very important in that day. Okay? This man's only child is a boy. And the boy we're going to see is in danger of dying. Okay? And he says, I need your help. Why? There's no Social Security in that day. There's no Medicare in that day. There's no Medicaid in that day. You see, when, when you had a child, it's sort of like you changed your child's diaper and cleaned his bottom and helped him when he's young. And when he gets old, he is to return the favor for you. That's what it was like in that day. Thanks. Some people caught on to that. That's what it was like. And so this guy's desperate. It's not only that he's got a loved one that's going to die. His future is at stake. The security of his future. Now, I only say that because I'm not trying to say we ought to use our children in the wrong way. But I want you to understand, some of you say, God doesn't understand. This is my future we're talking about. This guy comes to Jesus because everything is riding on this boy. And he says, I need your help. Now look, it goes on, 39. An evil spirit keeps seizing him, making him scream. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It batters him and hardly ever leaves him alone. Now, now I've got to interject something before we go any further. Remember this, God is good and Satan is bad. Please remember that. God is good and Satan is bad. Some people get that confused. And when they have situations like this father has, when they come to this kind of experience, they blame God and they never see Satan's involvement in their life. Okay? They tend to want to blame God. And they get mad at God. They say, how come God? But they never understand what Satan is doing in being involved in these experiences. Don't forget this. God is good. Satan is bad. You must remember that. Because if you don't, here's what's going to happen. Something's going to happen in your life that is bad. You're going to not have enough money. You're not going to have what security. You're, somebody you love is going to die. You're going to get a cancer. Something's going to happen that's bad. 
And then Satan's going to come to you. If you forget God is good, Satan is bad, Satan's going to come and whisper in your ear and he's going to say, oh, where's God? Man, he's not good. He doesn't help you at all. Man, I prayed to him. I know. You see, God is bad. He doesn't help. If you're honest, you know he whispers that in your ear. And if you forget God is good and Satan is bad then you get in a problem area in your life and you cry and you panic and you feel so hopeless. Because what you did before you got from God, remember the person who knows contentment? Gets without forgetting and you've forgotten because you see today you're saying, how come God? How come God? It's not coming today. How come God? And Satan says, yeah, God's not good. He's helping everybody else, but not you. Look at the next blank on your message map. The truth is, when God was done with His work, that's when He created everything, He said that everything was very good. There's no suffering, no sickness, no death. Satan arrives, if we look at the Bible, Satan arrives, lies and tempts our first parents, Adam and Eve. Okay? They participate with him, Satan, in his rebellion against God. In other words, they do what God said they shouldn't do. They participate with Satan's rebellion. Okay? And what is the result? Sin, suffering, sickness, and death comes into human history. You see, God is good, Satan is evil. But we don't like to, we just, Satan just whispers to us, no, no, no. God's bad. God's bad. During Jesus' experience on earth, his life on earth, Satan's evil would collide with Jesus' living, what God had sent him to do. And when they collided, we can see how good God is. What, what Satan would tell you is don't believe that stuff. That's why I give you all that sort of historical information. This is not written 100, 200, 300 years later. This is written just within three decades. I'm telling you, there's people who believe in other world religions that the biography of people who started those religions are written century or centuries later. Major world religions. But nobody tells you that. But they tell you, you can't believe in Jesus. They don't tell you don't believe in those people. So I give you the history just to help you understand this stuff is being written during an early, early experience in regards to writings of antiquity. But Satan will tell you, don't believe this stuff. Because you see, when Jesus walked the earth, Satan's evil would collide with Jesus' life. With just his living, what God sent him to do. And so we get an illustration. Satan wants to tear us down and destroy us. He wants to rob us from our joy. God wants to build us up and restore us from what sin has done to us. God wants us to know his peace and joy. The scriptures talk about that. You see, that's the battlefield. Listen to me. The battlefield isn't, are you going to come to church today? The battlefield isn't, are you going to connect group? Now those can become battlefields. But the battlefield is what you're going to think about God and what you're going to think about Satan. And Satan would like you to believe this. God's bad and Satan isn't real. That's what he would like you to believe. See? It, it, it's, like, it's like the Democrats would like to tell you, we're good and Republicans are never good. Of course, now listen. What do the Republicans say? Yeah, see some of you, we're good and the Democrats are never good. Are you following? That's what Satan says. 
Except he says, God is bad. I don't exist. It's a battlefield that goes on. It went on then, it goes on now. I'm going to show you how it went on in this man's life. But it went on then, and it goes on today. This guy, this guy is living a parent's nightmare. He has a child who is very sick and may die. If we read Mark's account of this experience, Mark says it's so serious that it throws the boy into fire or into water seeking to kill him. The father has to grab him out of the fire and say, oh son, I know you're insane. There's a demon in you. Kind of pull him out of the water and say, son, I know you didn't mean to do that to yourself. But there's a demon, there's evil that's influencing you. This guy, this guy is living every parent's nightmare. A child who is living a life out of control. And boy, that just causes great concern when you love that child. I know what that's like. I remember many years ago, Laura calling me. I'm away from home about three hours. And she calls me. I'm spending a week with a, another church and I'm speaking nightly and I'm trying to help them. And I remember their call. Hey, John, that's my oldest son. John was playing with a friend and they did something they shouldn't have did and, and he's hurt himself. And he's in the hospital. I mean, she calls me. It's probably about an hour before I'm supposed to meet with these people. He's in the hospital and the doctor said, this night is very strategic whether he will live or not because he could die from this injury. You know how doctors are. Anymore, they've got to tell you both sides. And I said, okay, you stay with him until it starts getting dark and you go home and be with our other three kids. And I'll be done and I'll drive there. And I remember I finished with that church at about 8.30 and I got in my car and I drove the two, two and a half hours to the hospital or, or whatever the distance was. And I remember I went to the room and John's asleep. And I sat right there by that bed and I prayed. I prayed and I fell asleep. And then I'd wake up and I'd pray some more. And then I'd fall asleep. And then I'd wake up and I'd pray some more. And I'd fall asleep. I'm sorry. I couldn't stay awake. I was tired. But eventually, day came. The doctor came. The doctor said, it's all looking good. He's got to be careful. I thank God. I love my son. I call my wife. I go back to my, what I was doing. I can only imagine what I felt that night. His father is feeling what every parent feels. Listen, not just when their child has a virus or a fever. It's what every parent feels when their child is out of control. That's where this dad is. Now look with me. Look at 41. Or I'm sorry, verse 40. This is the Father. He says, I begged your disciples to cast out the Spirit, but they couldn't do it. Now why couldn't the... Now listen to me before you read on. Why couldn't the disciples help this boy and this Father? At the beginning of this chapter, in verse 1 and verse 6, they have power. They can cast out 
demons, they, they have the power to confront evil. Why now don't they have it, see? In just a few days, the power is gone. Look, what, look at verse 41. Look at Jesus' reaction. Let me stop. They saw His glory. Three of them saw His glory. Now they weren't down there with the other nine. Jesus comes down off the mountain. Immediately somebody's interrupting Him. They want a piece of Him. And this father is in a desperate situation. And he says, man, these nine couldn't do it. Now the nine could do it just at the beginning of this chapter. Some days before, they had that power. But they can't do it now. Can you imagine? Do you ever get a little impatient sometimes when somebody's always interrupting you? Look what Jesus says, 41. You faithless. You faithless and corrupt people, Jesus said. How long? I'm going to tell you. Underline the next 12 words. How long? Underline that. How in your Bible? How long must I be with you and put up with you? reason I want you to underline that, when you read this six months from now, or this week, or two years, I want you to look at that again and apply that to yourself. Jesus looks at these disciples. He looks at this father. He looks at this situation. The boy, he's just being attacked by evil. I don't think Jesus is talking to him. Jesus is talking about the people involved. And Jesus is saying, how long must I be with you and put up with you? How long, in other words, do you say you know me? How long do you say Jesus is special and I have to put up with what's going on like this? How long? How long? Now, who is he saying this to? I don't believe he's directing it to the boy. Somebody says, how do you know who he's going to talk to? I always read the thing in context. If the content doesn't give me an answer, then I, I just be careful of assuming. I might get in a dialogue with somebody and say, well, it could be this or that. But content usually tells us, or the context, and I do not think it's the boy, because he's just being bombarded with evil. I'm going to tell you who I think Jesus is saying, who's faithless and corrupt. I think it's the Father. And I think it's the disciples. I don't think it is any crowd of people Okay, they weren't the ones asked to get involved and helped. To help. I think it's the Father who has been involved in this boy's life. And I think it's the disciples. And I want to tell you why. I think it's the Father first. Okay? I use that. Faithless and corrupt. Why? We're told in Mark the ninth chapter. We're told in Mark the ninth chapter that this had been going on for some years. In other words, it's not something new to the father. It's something the father could look when they sit at dinner and say, this boy's out of control. The father could look in the evening and say, this boy's out of control. The father would see in the morning, this boy's out of control. The father would see some days, he's pretty good, and in other days, this boy's out of control. In other words, the father had had this experience for years. The dad could have got involved with Jesus. He could have pulled his son and got him involved with Jesus. He could have turned from his life because he knew his son was out of control and he could have turned to Jesus sooner. Now listen to me. And he could have walked with Jesus and he could have been touched by Jesus. His son's life could have been changed. But you see what the scripture tells us. Even though he knew it for years, it's this day. Maybe his wife finally said, I'm going to divorce you if you don't do something about the son. Maybe his neighbor says, we want you to move out of the community if you don't do something about the son. Maybe it's that his money just was reaching an end because he kept trying to take care of the boy. The boy's out of control. I don't know what it is, but I just know the father waits 
Many years before he gets Jesus involved in his son's life. Now I say this, or I say that to say this. How many parents have raised some children and are going to raise others just like the some that are out of control? And how many grandparents are going to continue living the same way when they know their children is out of control and their grandchildren are going to be out of control? How many of us will raise up our preschoolers and teach them that God is not the priority? That we are, our time, our pleasure, their activity, and we'll wait years before they bring them into Jesus' experience. Oh, they may bring them to church, but it really, God, is not a priority. How many will wait years? This father, how, how, how many times did your son have to fall into a fire and almost die or fall in the water and almost dry, drown? How many times did your son have to fall to the ground and have convulsions before you're going to do something? Who's faithless here? Who's corrupt in the sense of knowing God is good, Satan is evil? It's the Father. And some of us will never change our ways. Some of us are, are 28 now with a child or two. And some of us are 38. And some of us are 48. And some of us are entering grandparent at that experience. And we're 50 and we're 60. And you know what? We still live the same way in regard to God. When our grandchildren and our adult children need to see an involvement with Jesus, that they might turn to Him soon. But it's not just the Father. I think He's talking to the disciples also. He's calling them faithless and corrupt people. Now why do I say that? Well, again, Luke just tells us that. But if you look at Mark, and even Jesus, Jesus says, they, they say to Jesus, why couldn't we do this? And Jesus says, I'm going to tell you why. Because this takes faith. You've got to believe something about God here. And also you've got to pray. You've got to talk to God about this. That's what you've got to do. You see, they, they remember the experience from a few days before when they could cast out demons, but now they've forgotten. They forgot. Gosh, have I seen people who have been involved in the church, people who, who have taken mission trips for God, and they say, wow, what God can do. And then they come home, and they forget those things. Or they've been involved in church with God, and they see Him work, but something happens, they get away, and they don't remember anymore. These disciples, for some reason, have disconnected faith and prayer. Both Mark and Matthew brings that out. To helping where evil is at. And so Jesus calls them faithless and corrupt. Remember, prayer, faith prayer, is what unlocks God's power. It's just not talking to God. It's prayer that demonstrates faith. Most folks pray just repetitious words and save prayers. Prayer that is of faith is what unlocks God's powers. Some of us, listen, some of us, we have a job. And you know what? We hardly ever pray about our work. And we say, I don't need to because you see, I can do my work well. I don't need to talk to God about that. Some of us are in a marriage and we don't ever spend very much time in prayer about how would God want me to relate to my mate. And we say, because you know what? I just know what to give and what not to give. And some of us are raising children and we really aren't talking to God about priority in our children's lives. 
Because we say, you know, I can raise my kids. I don't need anybody to tell me. Some of us are getting involved in activities that will take us away from God. We don't pray to God. We don't talk to God. God, now look, in my schedule, should this activity be there? And Some people don't even pray to God about their relationship with people. You know why I think we don't pray to God? I think we're afraid, especially in relationship with God, what do you think about me and this person and what we're doing and what we're talking about, what we're thinking? God, God, you know I Facebook to people. Man, I write things. What do you think about what I write? You know why I think we don't pray about those things? You know, I got mad at my child, God. Or I got mad at my, my mate. And you know, you know, God, what do you think about how I spoke to my mate? You know why I think we don't pray about those things? I think we're afraid in all those areas of what God might say to us. He might say, you ought to apologize to everybody on Facebook. You ought to go home and tell your mate. Or get up and go tell your mate. I'm sorry, man, that was wrong. I think we don't pray about things because we're afraid what God might say. You see, for some reason, in just a few days, these guys can't exhibit the power that they had before. Look at the next blank. Look at the next blank on your map. Faithless people don't pray real prayers of surrender and repentance. Understand that. Real prayers of surrender and repentance. They pray selfish prayers. Corrupt people don't, won't pray real prayers of surrender and repentance. Those two words are key to both of these statements I wrote. They just pray to get out of trouble. That's it. They just pray to get out of trouble. No, no surrender, no repentance. Just give. No surrender, no repentance. Just get me out of this trouble. Listen, I'm going to tell you something. God didn't fail. The Father failed. Please understand that. What God did that day with Jesus could have been done years before. God didn't fail. The disciples failed. Understand that. What they did just a few days before, they could have done that day. Don't you give up on God. Don't you give up on God's church because the church fails. Don't you give up on God's men because those men failed. Don't you give up on God's women because those women failed. Don't you give up on God's preacher because God's preacher failed. Listen, God doesn't fail. People fail. This is just an illustration for us. Someone is saying, Mike, do you, are you saying these disciples weren't very good people? Yeah. Look down at verse 46 real quick. Put that verse on the screen. Look at what 46, so I'm going to talk about it next week. Look what it says. Just, this, this is just, what, six verses later. Then his disciples began arguing about which of them was to be greatest. They weren't even learning any lesson. What they were trying to decide is, who's more worthy to be considered great in the kingdom of God? I think these guys got it all screwed up. They got it all messed up. They got it all confused because you see, Satan wants to do that. Look back at 41 again. Look at those words you underlined. Jesus said, how long must I be with you and put up with you? That phrase, how long must I be with you and put up with you, is recorded in Mark chapter 9 and is recorded in Matthew chapter 17. All three of the gospel writers made sure that statement was there because God wanted that statement there. Because that's the question. So I ask you the question, how long does Jesus have to put up with you? How long does He put up with you refusing to trust Him in your situation? 
Even at the door of death. And yet you talk about, you know Him for all eternity. How long does He have to put up with you when you know He's not a priority? It's you. It's the people in your life. How long does He have to put up with you when you think you've got it all figured out? Listen to me. But you know you don't. Because your life, your life is falling apart. Why could Jesus say this in this situation? Because look folks, He could say to the father and to the boy, you're faithless and corrupt because look at the situation. Look at the boy. Why didn't the father realize years before God is good? Why didn't the disciples think back to just a few days about what a good God did with them and gave them power? And Jesus asked, how long do, do I have to put up with you? He said, because Jesus God, how long does God have to put up with you? So my question to you is, how long does He put up with you? Listen, young man, you've heard me say things that just rocked you. You got excited. But then you forget it. How long? Well, look what goes on. Verse 41. Because God is good. Okay, Satan is bad. 41 says, Then he said to the man, Bring your son here. And as the boy came forward, the demon knocked him to the ground and threw him into a violent convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the evil spirit and healed the boy. And then he gave him back to his father. Let me just say this. What it, this means is Jesus returned the potential for which the boy was born to relate to dad. Not to be out of control. Okay? Could happen years ago. But the father wouldn't change. The father wouldn't stop earning extra money to take time off to be with Jesus. The father wouldn't give up playing softball to be with, take his child to be with Jesus. The father wouldn't give up date night, him and his mom, to be with Jesus. Some of you are saying, you're just trying to make me feel guilty. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. I'm just telling you, you look at your kids, look at your kids, and look what's going to happen in your grandchildren, and your kid isn't going to change because you didn't years ago make Jesus a priority. So why don't you start now? You're old enough to know what it means to make Jesus a priority. See, Jesus just returns this boy back to the potential he's supposed to have. I don't know what sin is in your life. I don't know what evil has control of you. And Satan will whisper and tell you, Nah, God's bad. What you're doing is okay. I just know this. You were born in this world to live the potential for which God's Word says you are to live. And He can restore that to you no matter what you're facing. Now that takes maybe some talking, but that's what He does with this boy. Now look what happens. 43. All gripped the people as they saw this majestic display of God's power. Of course it did. It always does. When you see a person whose life has been transformed, it is always amazing. Some of you could stand and others could say, yeah, I knew what your life used to be like and I know what has happened and the change has taken place. It's always amazing. It's always awing. Should we be surprised? 43 goes on. While everyone was marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, underline the next eight words, if you would. Because I, I tell you that, for you who are new, I only say that. I'm not trying to control people. Because you'll read this three years from now, and those underlined phrases you'll think more deeply about instead of just reading to get through the chapter 9. 
Jesus said, listen to me and remember what I say. That's the important thing. It's not important that you remember just what Mike says unless Mike is calling attention to what Jesus said. Jesus says, listen to me and remember what I say. Now he's going to tell them something that they're not going to understand. Am I telling you something right now you don't understand? I mean, it's really, it doesn't compute up here in your mind. It doesn't compute. Jesus is going to tell them something now that just won't compute in their mind. Look what he says. He says, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies. In other words, he's reminding them before it happens. He's going to suffer. He's already talked about this just a couple sermons back. I said he started telling them he's going to Jerusalem and he's going to die. Okay? And he's telling them, he's reminding them before it happens. That way when it happens, they can understand he said this, that they won't get all falling apart. Listen. Sickness, suffering, and death is going to enter your life and mine. Jesus has told us that. Will we be ready when it comes to keep our faith in Him and keep Him a priority? So He tells them before. Now look, He says in 45, but they didn't know, the people who heard Him, the disciples, they didn't know what He meant. Its significance was hidden from them so they couldn't understand it and they were afraid to ask Him about it. In other words, they couldn't understand this. What can't they understand? How can a man who can heal like this, who has this kind of power, remember, He's already raised dead people. How can a person with this kind of power suffer? How can His enemies kill Him? You see, that doesn't compute up here. Folks, it computes in God's mind. When we get to that, I'm going to talk about the price that was paid and what God was doing in the book of Luke. I'm going to talk about that. But see, right now, that don't make sense. What do you mean? How can your enemies hurt you? The demons can't even hurt you. You have control. It just doesn't compute. I'm going to tell you this. Right now, some things I've said to you, you're conflicting right here. Because Satan's trying to tell you, God is not good, and I don't exist. And I want you to remember, God is good, and Satan is evil. They just don't understand it. Now look, 45, but they didn't know what he meant. It's significantly hidden from them. Two, so they couldn't understand it. What does it say? And they were afraid to ask him about it. They didn't want to talk about it. Is it conflicting up here? Please, contact me. Let's talk. We can talk over the phone. Not even in person. When they should have said, Jesus, tell us more, they just were afraid to talk about it. Look at the last blank on your message, ma'am. Last blank. Jesus would suffer. That's what He told them. Do you know why He would suffer for you and me? Look what it says there and on your message map. It is for our sin that he suffered. It is for our sin that he died. That's why he suffered and died. My question to you this morning, before we move into face down, is will you keep pushing him away? Look, this world offers you so much opportunity and please, God created the beauty and the truth in this world for us to enjoy. Don't miss out on that. But will you keep pushing Jesus away? Listen to me. Will you keep pushing Him away? Will you allow your doubts to cause you to move from Him? Will you allow your struggles to cause you to give up on Jesus? Will you go for years with the conflict 
of out-of-control experience before you turn to Jesus, if you ever turn to Jesus. Don't push Him away. We're going to do face down. Face down is, is what some call communion, some call Lord's Supper, some call the Eucharist. We're just going to, in a little bit, people are going to come and they're going to have some bread and they're going to have a juice. And we're going to take the bread and the juice. And we're doing it because Jesus said every person who is a follower of Him ought to do this on a regular basis. 